Hi, my name is Bridget Richardson. I'm the Assistant Director of Ecumenical and Pastoral Initiatives at the Nesty Center for Faith and Culture at University of St. Thomas in Houston. And I'm here with Dr. Brian Reed. He's the Chair of the Clinical Sciences Department at the University of Houston College of Medicine, the Board Chair for Doctors for Change, a practicing family physician, and also on the advisory board for the Nesty Center for Faith and Culture. So Dr. Reed, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're going to get into um, health disparities that are in the Houston area and also touch on the pandemic. So maybe you can just start us off with a little um, baseline of what some health disparities are, your work, and um, your connection to the Houston area. So as a family physician, um, you know, many of us think about what ways in which we can improve the lives and well-being of the patients that we're seeing. It's not just enough for us to say prescribe a medication. We really want the patients to get better. Ideally, when we do some sort of intervention or when someone comes into contact with the healthcare facility, ideally it would lead to a longer, healthier life and a better quality of life. And unfortunately throughout my career, even in the city as great as Houston, or you know, county with Harris County, we see that not everybody's able to experience the same levels of quality life or the length of life. Um, what we found is over time, people have started to think about this idea, this concept that your zip code may in fact be more important than your genetic code because of such differences in terms of life expectancy. We see that within a couple of miles, the average life expectancy may be a difference of 10 to 15 years. Interestingly enough, if you look at the city of Houston, because they, in, in nearly Harris County, they've done maps. Um, these are sub-county average life expectancy uh, maps. They look almost like a reverse C in the sense that the west side of the county, people tend to live longer, healthier, more productive lives than those on the east side of the county. So we talk about like sort of the ship channel area, kind of going around Pasadena. Um, if you compare that to like Katy, um, of course, Westview, River Oaks, you know, places where you find more affluence, individuals there are living well into their 80s, where some of the less fortunate areas of um, the county, people are living into their um, upper 60s. There's some a huge difference in life expectancy within a pretty close geographic proximity. This notion of sort of health disparities has gotten a little bit more traction lately with the COVID-19 when we've seen sort of disproportionate um, individuals of Latino or African-American descent uh, dying from it. But all it's really done is sort of expose some of the underlying health disparities that we are aware of. Now, there's several physicians here and several organizations that are sort of dedicated to trying to combat this or address this. Uh, many of them are working within the different safety net organizations here in town. And those would include, say, your Harris Health System, several of the federally qualified health centers like Hope Clinic, Legacy, Vecino, El Centro de Corazon, Spring Branch FQHC, Lone Star Circle of Care, uh, Be Busy, and there, there are others. Or some of the charity clinics like Ibencina, San Jose, or uh, crisis clinic. So all of these organizations are trying to do more, but there's just such need in this area that even with all these 
uh, teams of doctors, and we're talking hundreds of doctors working in these safety net organizations, it's still not enough. And I hate to ask such a basic question, but why? <laughs> like, why, why? Why is the need so high? Why are these problems so deeply rooted in, you know, the Houston area? Yeah. So um, we used to think of this as being sort of ground zero for uninsured, and, and, and it is. And unfortunately, um, we have, you know, in the nation, we have the highest rates of uninsured individuals or underinsured individuals. And when we think about sort of health outcomes, what sort of determines, you know, how long someone's gonna live and what sort of quality of life they're gonna have, only a small percentage of that is due to the medical care that they receive. Um, some models have said it may be only about 10% or 20% of the healthcare access or healthcare that they receive is gonna determine sort of how long they live. A much bigger factor is gonna be behavior, you know, smoking, alcohol use, lack of physical activity, poor diet, that's gonna account for about 40%, those health behaviors. Genetics is gonna play a role. You know, unfortunately people do inherit uh, certain illnesses or diseases from, you know, just kind of runs in their family. Environment, sort of unsafe, unhealthy environments can also be a factor. And then there is some socioeconomic, socioeconomic status too that plays a role in it. Um, so for us, we have a large population of individuals here, many of whom, because of sort of health policies, we don't have um, many people involved. Uh, you know, the thresholds for being enrolled in Medicaid, for example, are uh, much lower here than, say, in other states. You can earn more money in other states and still qualify for Medicaid in other states, whereas here in Texas, um, it's pretty low, and we did not expand Medicaid with the Affordable Care Act. And, um, you know, when you put those things together, you know, that's part of the reason why we have uh, the uh, sort of levels of, of health disparities here and, and challenges. I mean, even, even, in, the, even in a county, um, you know, if you live, say, like in Fort Bend County versus a Harris, Harris County, because there is no Harris cell system in a Fort Bend County, your ability to access a hospital like a Bentob or a county clinic is, is reduced. I mean, you just, they just don't have the infrastructure there. So, you know, it, you could have someone with the same amount of income living in Fort Bend County, but there's just no programs in place as, as they do in Harris County. So. And is that why y'all look at it by zip code and area? Because it, that differs so drastically? So I think the reason why we look at it with zip code is we were able to get sort of data. It's sort of tied to birth certificates and death certificates. So it's easier just to link through. We've got, you know, um, uh, these, uh, you know, people born here in this zip code and then, you know, the average age of people dying. But we, we know that these neighborhoods are vastly different too. Um, you know, some places they have sidewalks, they have parks it's much more amenable for people to kind of go outside, walk and exercise in other areas where there's no sidewalks and you know, stray dogs. Uh, there's no grocery stores in certain areas where in others there's you know, multiple grocery stores around. So all of these sort of things in which uh, the neighborhoods are planned and developed, they, they lead to you know, these outcomes. They, they, they you know, do impact people over time. Um, 
so, you know, for us as physicians, I think, you know, part of me as being a family physician is really, it's taken me time to understand that, okay, yes, I'm treating this person with high blood pressure and these are the recommended medications, but I've got to really sort of think about health happens where people live, work, worship, and play. And my neighborhood isn't necessarily the same as the neighborhood in which the person from the person that's right across, you know, look that I'm looking at. And I've got to think about that. I've got to think about other possibilities as I'm sort of giving them this advice, you know, this is the way that you should eat. This is the way, well, you know, Hey doc, there's no place for me to buy that food in my area. Or so we've got to come up with a, you know, mutually agreeable plan, something that not that I'm just, prescribing to them, but something that's going to be feasible and something that's going to work for them in their lifestyle. And how do you, because I know so much of who you are and part of your mission is to educate people about the underserved, how in you just adapting the style and the recommendations that you give to someone could change the whole outlook of their life? Because I know, you know, people have a tendency, like if they can't do something, especially health-wise and medically, mm -hmm. they throw their mm -hmm. hands up like, oh, I can't work yes. out this morning. I don't have time. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> or at least, yeah. you know, that's the way people think. So how does that, how does that carry out in your vocation to serve the underserved? So, I mean, that's a very good point because it, I, I think it is very frustrating. Um, and um, I know I've had patients tell me, you know, that Sometimes they're afraid to see me because, you know, they think I'm going to beat up on them or I won't understand them or, you know, maybe they'll just tell me what I want to hear rather than tell me the truth. So I think it, it sort of, you know, it kind of goes along with the, you know, sort of the theme that we have for the Center for Faith and Culture is that we have to really dialogue and have to seek understanding and that, you know, yes, I'm a health professional, but I'm, my position and station here in, in this world is no different than you. And I really, I'm just human like you. You know, my job is here to help. And the only way that I'm going to really be able to do that is to understand, you know, more about where you're coming from, understand more about your life and relate to those experiences and, and really treat with compassion and empathy. Um, True, I don't may not have the same struggles that you have, but I can at least empathize with that. I can understand that. And, you know, together with that sort of understanding, you know, we can devise a plan or devise something that'll work for you, or I can get you the appropriate help. You know, maybe my top priority is dealing with the blood pressure, but because you're so stressed out, you can't even think about that. So let me get you connected either with a behavioral therapist here at the center or somewhere else, or get you connected with a, a faith community, someplace where you feel comfortable sharing. You know, there, are, there is help for you out there and there are people that care for you. A lot of times when, I, when we're working at these, these, these facilities, um, and people have encountered so many you know, negative things in the world outside of the clinic walls that, you know, I make it, you know, my mission to not have a bad day, not take out whatever's going on in the back of my head, you know, on, you know, whoever's coming, you know, if the patient's late or whatever, I, I forget that. Because I understand there's different circumstances, different struggles, and you, you took whatever, you know, you went through whatever you did to get here. I'm here, I'm available, you know, let's, 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 you know, try to make the most of this time together and get you the help that you need. So, um, you know, that, that's, 
you know, the, that's, I think, the underlying premise is really to try to get a more understanding of where the patients are coming from, understand that, you know, within this 15 or 20 minute visit, you know, I can make so many recommendations, but to really make an impact, I have to understand what happens in the three or four or five months between this visit, what happens in the world around you, and take that into consideration. And I ask them to share those things with me. And how have you uh, been treating or seeing patients during this time of pandemic and adapting that ethos to the way that you're interacting with them, knowing they may be anxious, they may be ultra stressed, or they may be more sedentary, <laughs> you know, things like that. How, how have you had to adjust what you do? Yeah, this has probably been the most challenging thing I've ever seen in my career. Um, so initially it, it felt like and maybe still it is to some degree that the patients were afraid of the physicians or the nursing staff or the medical staff, and we were afraid of them. So, I mean, it's hard to have a relationship when we are both sitting across the room like, you know, what's going on? You know, am I going to catch something from you or are you going to get to give something to me? You know, I mean, I've treated tuberculosis in the past. I've, you know, put gowns on. I've been around, I mean, I've been around illness, but this is really sort of the first time where uh, we have really had such fear and been like, okay, do not come out the house. Do not come to the doctor's visit for something so trivial, okay? We will try to manage you at home. We'll do it telephonically or, you know, we convert it to video visits to try to keep uh, patients at home. And unfortunately, you know, for me, the video visit just did not lead to that same level of connectivity. I mean, sometimes I guess patients' bandwidths were not the greatest, or I'm, you know, maybe looking at somebody's eye because they're holding the phone up a certain way. So you just miss that sort of level of connection, that same sort of connection. So it's been a, it's it's been a challenge. I have seen a lot more anxiety, um, but I think it's easy to relate because we're all going through it at the same time. I mean, I've had anxious moments in my household. So I, I think despite that, you know, despite this sort of uh, challenge, it, it, we, we were able to find, a, you know, common experience or common understanding. It's, it's really easy to relate to someone that's anxious today because of, of this. So, you know, sometimes I tell them, well, we just need to turn off the news, you know. And I, I do remind people, it is safe to go outside. We tell people that, you know, it's open air. So please take advantage of this time and walk. Um, I think one of the blessings that I've personally had is I've been home a little bit more with my children. I've gotten home earlier from work, leaving the clinic because there has been light traffic. So um, my boys, they're, they're teens, and they were both on the track team. And the force of the track season got canceled because of this but we would find our way to a track and um, would run together at night I mean of course they're running a lot faster than me they're doing their track workouts but this was time that I probably won't ever have again with them um, you know and I just sort of ran around the track just jogging you know just doing some distance running while they were doing their uh, track workouts but you know, I, I never would see them in practice, you know, in the past and would barely make it to a meet because of just the timing of them. So, you know, this has been, you know, a unique time for us together. Yeah, that's, that's great to tie it into the family. And how much do you think even that connect, connectedness to family 
has an effect on your health, your mental health, your spiritual health, as you know, people are trying to process this time? Well, you know, in an ideal world, you have ideally you have good relationships with your family and it's not a source of stress. <laughs> so for me and my household, I mean, it's, it's been a blessing. Um, and it is, um, you know, much of what I do ultimately is, is, you know, to try to support the, you know, the family and, and um, you know, be a good role model for uh, my children and, um, you know, um, you know, provide for them the best that I can. So, you know, this, this, you know, time with them, you know, again, it's just, I think it's helped me, you know, and helped keep me also grounded. I mean, it's, it's really sort of interesting um, how, you know, now that we're working so much from home, work is kind of, it's hard to set boundaries. You know, it's kind of, kind of <laughs> infiltrated, you know, the office and life, but, you know, at the same time, having them around or being around them has, has helped, helped me too through this. Oh, that's, that's awesome that, you know, you do have that time. And um, just one final question for you. You know, there's always a lot of information out there about health and what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And do you have any resources that we can uh, link to in our description or share with people from your experience and your connections that are good resources to go to and say, okay, check this website about some best practices or go here to find more information? So we're fortunate enough living in Harris County. Um, we have two of probably the strongest health, local health departments in the nation. Um, actually, both of them have been recognized, I want to say within the last five years, as being the top you know, health department in <laughs> the nation. So Harris County Public Health has an outstanding website that has a dashboard that you know, features all the numbers of corona, uh, coronavirus or COVID-19 cases, as well as resources for both businesses, as well as public, you know, just every, you know, everyday citizens. There's also readyharris.gov. Um, that is a website that we use really sort of anytime there's a, there's a crisis. So they tend to activate readyharris.gov if there's like a hurricane or some other massive flooding. And right now, that's a resource for, um, you know, where to get tested as well as some information about COVID-19. Um, another resource is the city of Houston's health department. So they have uh, up-to-date information about uh, keeping individuals safe. And then for those that are really kind of trying to figure out what's going on in terms of our hospital situation, you know, do we have beds and, you know, what's, what's, what's happening in the region? We have the Texas Medical Center, the world's largest, and their website, tmc.edu, actually has a daily um, update in terms of how many beds we have available, how many people are on in the ICU, how many people are on ventilators and all that. So, I mean, I, I think when we talked about, you know, sort of the social distancing and, and everything, we, we, by the time we got into our community, we knew it was too late. I mean, we, we, we at that point, I mean, so, you know, from a public health standpoint, ideally you would have kept it out completely, kept it over there, and you know we would have been able to live our our, our lives. But clearly, that you know unfazed un, un, un by this, but clearly that that ship has left the support. <laughs> so then we go to mitigation. You know, how do we um, keep as many of us 
healthy, safe, and alive. So that's where all the social distancing is painful as, as it has been and closing has been just to be sure that we didn't overwhelm the system and that if people were to get sick, that there would be places for them to go um, to seek care. I mean, this is, in all honesty, this is just sort of basic common sense, you know, how do we keep well? And if someone's sick, yeah, you stay away from them, <laughs> you know? And with this, unfortunately with this disease or virus, oftentimes there, there's a period of time which people can pass the virus without being symptomatic. So you don't know they're sick, they don't know they're sick. So that's why you've had to institute such drastic measures um, as you know, closing businesses and you know, telling people to stay at home uh, because we just did not want people coming together who you know, may not even be aware that they have the virus. So now going forward, as we reopen these businesses, we have to use the you know, things that we wouldn't typically do to keep ourselves well. You know, good hand hygiene, washing our hands frequently, much more frequently than before, cleaning commonly touched areas. The mask, the mask actually does help. I mean, they, they've shown that, as I know, as people don't like to wear masks and don't, you know, but it helps keep us safe. I mean, it helps me prevent spreading it to someone else and also someone spreading it to me. I mean, it's been proven effective. And then um, there was recently an article just talking about you know, distance that respiratory droplets fly and the coughing, the sneezing, the singing. I mean, actually that choir that got sick, it was, they thought it was the singing because you're projecting so much. Um, so, you know, that's why six feet is helpful. Um, you know, actually, if you're doing things where you're shouting, yelling further, it would actually be probably better because it, the droplets fly. So. Yeah. Just one final question. Cause you've piqued my interest in it. What can you say about the common good in terms of our health, like the health of all of us as one, you know, because you're, you're touching on some really interesting topics and especially in our culture today, like people are, some people are against it. Some people are totally for it. And, you know, there's this chasm sometimes. And when they try to dialogue, what can you speak to about, you know, these health practices as an effort for the common good? So, you know, in, in all honesty, um, when, when we've, before we, before we even got to, you know, closing down businesses and closing down the rodeo, um, those of us that have had some experience in public health um, kind of said, you know, if we did these sort of things during flu season, we'd have a lot less people getting sick. You know, people stayed home when they didn't feel well. If people washed their hands, and just were more conscientious of, you know, the potential um, harm that they could cause to somebody else, you know, we wouldn't even have as many flu cases. I mean, this is the, these sort of actions are the same things that we do um, for really sort of any sort of contagious thing. Um, so, you know, these sacrifices that we're making in this particular situation is because it is new. We don't know how deadly it is. And we don't know who's going to be in fact affected. I mean, I know early on people were saying, you know, it's only 1% or 2%. So most people will do okay, but we don't know who's going to be in that 2%. It could be me. It could be you. It could be my mother. It could be my brother. So that's why we take these steps because at this time we really cannot predict or tell, you know, who's going to be adversely impacted. 
And, you know, and the people talk about what flu season was, it's so bad at this. And I'm like, this is new. You know, six months ago, we had nobody dying from coronavirus. I mean, it's, yeah, that's, that's what's sort of scary for me. I mean, so in addition to everything else that are killing, that's killing people, now we have this new thing. So, you know, we're all linked. And I think part of the pain with this is that we don't do too well when we're not together. Social isolation is, um, it's a challenge for us. I mean, we are social creatures. We do much better from that whole idea of living longer and living better when we have supportive people around us, when we have good help, good families, uh, we do better. When we have communities of faith, when we're interacting with communities of faith, you know, we as individuals do better. So staying away from loved ones, it's usually not too good for us. But, you know, in this case, it's a sacrifice, a temporary, you know, a painful but temporary sacrifice that we're trying to make to ensure the you know, safety and well-being of others. But, you know, it, for us, you know, the sooner we can get back together, I think that, you know, we all thrive together, thrive better. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reed, for this conversation. It's been a real joy to talk to you today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And you have a good one. All right. You too. Take care.